Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Quip, makers of refreshingly simple tools for proper dental care. Visit tryquip.com weekend to get 10% off your first refill. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're taking stock. We're talking about our piles of shame, that modern gaming tradition that sticks so hard to our hearts like so much buildup, and the related phenomena of choice paralysis as we live in this bizarre world where there are too many games to play, not enough time to play them, and... Steam sales and so on and so forth that that sort of have created this phenomena. So, so Rob, I know you wanted to chat about this. I think it's it's the perfect time to talk about it in January when you know releases are a little bit slow. We all probably have you know sort of holiday games we're still attacking, and then we start looking at our Steam libraries and being like, oh boy, what do I, what do I do? What what do I do first? Yeah, and it's been a so something that's happened to me a couple times in the past week is that. I'll have like an hour, not more than an hour, but an hour. And I'm like, I really want to spend that hour with just the right game. And I open up like the three different places now that I keep my games, Origin, yeah. Steam, and like good old games, or sorry, GOG with the new branding, uh, new being three years old. <laughs> I open them all up and then I'm like, okay, great. What game? What what game should I play with this with this with this hour? And even if I'm just looking at the shit I've got installed, I'm still like, okay, it's like it's like eight, ten different games. All right, what are you really in the mood for? And then it turns into this weird negotiation with myself of like, and by the way, the clock is running. Like I'm acutely aware the clock is running. You know that hour is becoming like it's already like 50 minutes. I'm like, okay, you really need to play something. It becomes 45 minutes. Like ah, no, that's really less than an hour. So <laughs> out go the really like immersive RPGs. I'm like that's not really the the, the you know the the, the right moment for that. Uh, but, you know, maybe a dumb action game. Ah, uh, but uh, I'm a little I'm a little tired. My, I feel slow and sluggish. <laughs> I don't know if I want to play a really, like, you know, twitchy, twitchy action game. Uh, maybe something a little, a little more strategic. 30 minutes. Like, 30 minutes left to play. I'm like, oh, boy. But, like, which strategy game? That's the real question. Like, do you want turn-based? Do you want 4X? And really, like, if you're too tired to play an action game, uh, you're certainly too tired to, like, play a paradox game or you know maybe even Civ. so maybe you need to look at something more casual 15 minutes left okay so now it can't be really anything narrative uh it's it's really just gotta be ah uh, boy it doesn't even matter i guess well it's time to make dinner and time to do this exact same process with netflix Oh, that's God. that's kind of the, like that's happened a couple times times this past week, but I, I think it's this. It, in some ways, it was easier before the holidays because I had this like weird sense of obligation to play as many games as possible before like yeah. discussing end of year game of year stuff. So that that was easy because it was like it was kind of like Dennis Hopper from Speed was like in there, you know, like all right, Hot Shot, Pop Quiz. <laughs> there's there's like twenty games you haven't played this year. And only eight days left to like finalize what your favorite games were. Play them all. And so I was just like shotgunning games right and left. 
now the pressure's off. I can just enjoy this, like, banquet before me. And it is. Like, there's so many good games that I want to finish or or do more with shit. I just reinstalled The Witcher because I was like, oh, I'll bet yeah. that DLC's real good. Yeah. <laughs> I just got really excited yeah. about you playing The Witcher again. <laughs> but, but in the past week, I've kind of, like, barely done any of that. And I don't know. It's it's this weird... I don't, like... I have I've had this feeling a few times over the past couple of years, but like I don't remember feeling as kind of overwhelmed by uh, a a surfeit of uh, a surplus of good options uh, as I do right now. Yeah, I totally agree. I think this is like the modern world in a nutshell. We have so many choices, and for entertainment, not not the modern world politically, not the modern world in other ways. Let's be clear. But this is. Like, in terms of information, in terms of what you can do when you go online, in terms of what you can do with your sort of spare time, basically, we have a million options, and because we all have limited time, it's like this this min-max effect, where it's like, no, I need to have the optimal time right now, so how do I make sure I have the optimal time? Like, what is the most effective and efficient use of my maximum enjoyment calculation you know whatever however you phrase it in your mind i mean i don't think a lot of us actually phrase it in our minds but and it sucks because you end up doing nothing a lot of the time and just being sad and just feeling like overwhelmed and like you're on a treadmill instead of having a nice beautiful run outside and and it just got it so hard i actually i had a really it was a rough week i think for everybody um but last night so we're recording this on on saturday Morning and last night I, I put in Last Guardian again. Put in whatever loaded it up. I feel like put in is like a nice quaint way of of, of saying it. Yeah, yeah, I put yeah, in yeah. a cart. I put in the cartridge for the Last Guardian, and I was playing this game, and I was frustrated. We've talked about the Last Guardian quite a bit, so this isn't about the Last Guardian so much as it is about me just being frustrated with you know analysis paralysis and choice paralysis. I'm playing it and I'm, you know, I'm struggling with the controls. I'm struggling with everything. And I'm just sort of like yelling at the game. And my girlfriend is like, why, why are you playing this right now? Like you could be playing 10 other games that you want to play, that you've talked about wanting to play. And I kind of just snapped back with like, I just want to fucking finish this game. Like, I just want to finish a game right now. I haven't, you know, I don't feel like I've fully finished a game like a longer game, you know, not not like a, a two-hour game. I don't feel like I've fully, completely beaten a game in, like, a long time. I don't know, a few months, I guess, even, um, because of this, because of this phenomenon of, like, having no time and wanting to play everything and trying to hit everything, especially in that end-of-year sort of, uh, you know, rundown that you were talking about a minute ago. So I just had this, like, shitty moment of, like, no, I just want to finish this. I'm nowhere near the end. I don't know if I'm going to finish this game because I did actually put it down in frustration again last night. Uh, and I and I just was like having this opposite feeling of like, God damn it, I just want to see the credits roll on a AAA video game right now. Um, which I realized I could, pl- I could probably play Call of Duty and that would happen. That would be easier. But yeah, God. And, and I, you know, I spent all last week sort of uh, doing other things than playing games. I, you know, doing a lot of the sort of management end of stuff. And then, of course, I got to play plenty of games. I went to the Switch event the other day. That was cool. And I played uh, Read Only Memories, the sort of new version of Read Only Memories. Uh, I almost feel like sometimes I need to 
be forced to play something by work. Like, oh, you're going to an event, gotta play this, and that will make me, that takes the choice away. So I get to just play the thing that I'm at the event for, or I play the thing that we've decided to stream that day. It, it feels like when work makes a decision for me, I have an easier time and probably a better time at this point. Yeah, I definitely have, have had that experience too, where like, those kinds of constraints can be really positive in some ways because then you don't have the choice. Yeah. Uh, you just you just have to, you know, play what what's on your docket for that day. Um, but I'm interested in this, like, because because I think that's part of my problem as well. I almost feel like a lot of times in that whole paralyzed by choice moment, there's probably actually a game I do kind of want to play, like more yeah. than the others. Yeah. But for some reason, I'm not letting myself play that one because I'm like, I'm already playing all these other games. They've been installed for a while. It's time to finish them. And then once you finish them, you can play that game you're looking forward to. But like right now, you've got to finish. You've got to finish wading through some of these experiences that either they're not really clicking with you or that you're just not in the mood for that night. But I definitely feel this weird sense of obligation toward a lot of games that, like, not only do I need to finish you someday, but, like, I need to finish you before I can really, like, tackle anything else. Yeah. And that is, I think, also very much a part of the problem is, like, this sense that if you haven't completed something or haven't, haven't really sunk time into it, you haven't really had the experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like... Yeah. Like, this is where I'm at with Mafia 3. I'm pretty bored by a lot of the action in that game. Sure. Like, I enjoy the world. I enjoy the storytelling. But, like, good God, every time you go out into the, that open world where so little is happening of interest, um, I don't know. It's just such a huge, a huge drag on the experience. I'm starting to think I would probably just prefer Mafia 3 as, like, a cable drama. Like, honestly, <laughs> I might, that, that might have been... Uh, my jam or or a linear shooter but i can't quit it because i'm like well the story of lincoln clay is not done yeah and i certainly can't play anything like open world-ish that's not mafia 3 until i do that (laughs) yeah yep i'm i'm sort of there with that game too i even even though I love the open world stuff, like I just like being in that world. Not that it's like that I think there's always fascinating stuff to do in that world. I just I really like the world. But I just it's just so giant. And I think that's maybe part of the problem with, with some of these things. And I believe I have Witcher 3 installed again too, just so you know. As Austin has been talking about it so much at uh at, at Waypoint Radio that he has like a weekly Witcher check-in now because <laughs> he's been playing it again. Uh, because, of course, that DLC is sounds real amazing and I didn't get to it this year um, or last year. But it's just like these games are so massive and giant and and just it's mind-boggling how much stuff there is to experience. It actually sounds exhausting to me just talking about it right now. Not Witcher because I always kind of want to jump into Witcher, but like the idea of like, finishing these open world games, like finishing it or, or beating it, or at least to the point where you see the credits roll, you, you get some sort of conclusion or you get to some kind of ending. 
it just exhausts me physically. Like I just wanna go to sleep. Just thinking about how much stuff I need to do, I wanna go to sleep. And that sucks because these are fun games that I should be playing for fun or enrichment in some way. You know, this should be something that, you know, when I was a kid, I would I would want to wake up and on a Saturday morning and be so excited to to play my new game or to play my game, whatever it was, even if it wasn't a massive, huge kind of experience, because those didn't really exist at, at, on that scale at that point. And I would be so excited because then I could dip into this world and I could be part of it and I could play in it and I could have so much fun. And now it feels like a chore and it feels like work. And that sucks because I... I I still really like playing games and I like open world games if they if they feel compelling to me. So it's this weird exhaustion sort of uh, that I'm feeling towards a lot of stuff and that that can't be good. <laughs> I wonder to an extent how much of this is also due to I don't know the the insecurity of adulthood or the insecurity of being an adult right now in, in an industry like ours. Yeah. Um, because I think part of it, it, it's like, it's not like boo-hoo, there's too many games. It, it's right. more that, for me, it feels like there's there's really two things happening. One is that I really want to enjoy the hell out of something. I don't, I don't just want to be a distraction. Like, I really want to like become really immersed and absorbed in something. And that's become something that's become increasingly hard. Uh, and that's not just games. Like that's, uh, you know, that's, that's books. That's, that's, that's television. Uh, I think one reason I, I still really like watching movies is because I don't do it often enough. But when I do, it was like, oh, you, you watched, you spent two and a half hours like absorbed in something. Yeah. Almost doesn't matter whether it was good or not. You were just, you were <laughs> just doing it. Um, but when you're sort of approaching, you know, your, you know, actually free hour in a day or something, I feel this pressure to make the most of that and, like, enjoy whatever game I'm playing, enjoy it really deeply. But the other thing that I think makes it hard to do that is this feeling that everything has a cost, everything is a trade-off, and... Oh, yeah there's probably something else you already should be doing with that time. So if you're going to do this, you need to make the most of it. And I kind of feel like, you know, certainly where we're at in our careers and in our age, like the number of things that you need to sort of start paying attention to more, just start increasing, right? Like uh, I need like, you know, for the past few months, I've been getting a lot more regular about working out and and stuff like that but like that is now no longer an option it's just something that has to happen the yeah. you know you need to make room for that in your life now uh the, you know you you need to make room in your life for cooking a little more often because you know you just you know you need to stop eating so much goddamn takeout or yeah. you know you 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 you, you know you, you want to just eat more healthy there's all these things that yeah. like there there's all these things that you're like I can do this, and I actually know I need to do it. It's good for me, and I'll feel better. But that 24-hour pie isn't growing. By the way, I've also been, uh, it's also like, also I really need to like stop pretending that five hours of sleep on the regular is sufficient. Like, God. you can do it. You can absolutely do it for a long, long time. But, like, I feel more human if I get seven hours of sleep. Like, I feel, yeah. like, just different. And, and so I think that's the other thing that, that is happening here is that... 
throwing a bunch of time away at a game used to be a fairly thoughtless thing. Yeah. And it wasn't just in college or, or being a little kid. Like, just, just, like, not even that long ago, it was something you could just sort of, that I felt like I could just, okay, well, awesome. I'm just going to blow eight hours on this weekend uh, or this Saturday uh, just playing through this game. I don't feel that. Yeah, in that. your 20s at some point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, like, at this point, it's just like, as you're doing that, you just start hitting so many freaking guilt trips. You know, yes. you really, you know, you really need to go to the store. You know, you really need to, you really, you really need to go work out and and do the do that PT that your doctor said you needed to do. And by the way, maybe you should try meditation. I don't know, just a thought, like stuff <laughs> like that. And and eventually, it's like, all right, cool. So, out of the twenty four hours, like <laughs> eight are devoted to sleep, uh, like you know, six are devoted to like health and nutrition, and then, you know, another six devoted to work on a weekend. It just it, it starts to feel like um, it, it starts to feel like almost no game is really like no game can be worthy of of that precious that, that precious one or two hour fraction that remains. Oh, totally. And like I know I know for a fact that like I'm sure people who are parents are listening to this and just cackling at us because they think oh you have so much free time <laughs> you don't have children and and like. That thought, the fact that I had that thought actually depresses me more because it's like, oh, it only gets worse. Great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like if, if you're not that I'm saying that we will have families, uh, young families ever. But if, if it ever is a possibility, it's like, oh, wonderful. <laughs> it just. No, I, I look at my friends with, with kids. Yeah. Actually, no, I, I say that. What surprises me yeah. is that most of my friends with kids get the same amount of stuff done that they did before it's just harder but they do it and i think that's the that's the other frustrating thing is i suppose you know it's a bit like maybe working out where it's like you can actually do so much more than you give yourself credit for yeah like you can actually like jam pack that day full of all sorts of stuff but you just need that pressure you just need those constraints because for some reason it's those days when you really like it's those moments when the pressure is taken off that you're like a caged animal that doesn't suddenly doesn't know what to do with like an open field. <laughs> totally. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Where do those walls go? Like, what do I yeah. do? Like, this is really unusual and cool. I guess I'll just sit here in, this, in the same, like, you know, six by six box and not, not do anything. And I'll like, just lick my paw. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. That's kind of how it feels. Because oh, that paw needs to be licked. That paw is not going to lick itself. I mean, it's like actually what my dog does for real when I let him out of his playpen. Um, but yeah, like I, I actually even, I went to my doctor for like my anxiety has, had been so bad that I was having like chest pains actually. And I went to my doctor the other week and it was like, yeah, it's definitely anxiety. No, no problem. Um, cause it's just, there's always the, the sense that like, I always like to do too much. That's just part of my functioning. Like I, you know, I have, I have a pretty heavy full-time job and I'm teaching two courses right now. My, for my part-time job. And then I, I have a volunteer gig. So I'm on an ambulance every other week or so, uh, doing a shift. And I, and I have three pets and I have my girlfriend. I've got all my, I've got all my shit, you know, and I, I work out every day and I actually just started Brazilian jiu-jitsu again. So I've been training, uh, like four days a week, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And it's like, I, I always do too much. That's, this is part of how I live. It's part of how I distract myself from being depressed is just having too much shit to do. But like lately, this this feeling of that I've been describing, this feeling of like 
well, fuck, you need to maximize your time and all things that you do has dipped into my gaming feelings more than ever, more than usual. That's why it's like weird and a topic to talk about on a gaming podcast, because it's like, oh, fuck, like this, this way that I function, this way of doing too many things that I, I take pride in is now officially a problem in my hobby that I, well, obviously part of my job, but like also in my like leisure time gaming. Like it's it's actually starting to really bother me in this area of my life too. And I'm mad about that because I'm like, hey, this was sacred space. This was, yeah. <laughs> this is a place, depression, where you are not, and anxiety, where you are not allowed to be because this is where I escape you completely by, you know, playing around as a as an ape running around obstacle courses or or you know as a witcher in a magical land where right. I, I have sex with hot witches and also you know fight with my sword like it's 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 uh by the way yeah. you say fight with my sword now i'm picturing like a really awkward like buddy like buddy road trip movie where like <laughs> it's Geralt and his wacky sword it's like <laughs> i'm the witching sword yeah <laughs> yeah that's uh that's something we need to make happen somehow. Maybe that's maybe that's another podcast. It's the Witcher and his sword, and it's like the sword is a sassy, back talking, you know, Kazooie type character. Yeah, kind of. That's how the sword talks. I don't know why they talk like that, but they do. Uh, but yeah, it's it's you know, and I and I can't help but think a lot of this is informed by sort of a general anxiety that a lot of us have right now politically and with what's happening in the world and what what's about to happen and and it kind of feels like i think a lot of folks i'm speaking for myself but i'm also speaking from conversations i've had with other people in the industry lately where it's like well uh a really bad person is about to take over the presidency and really bad things have happened to the affordable care act and and just really bad things are happening in our country so let's write about video games which is not a you know it's uh, it's not a complaint. Like this is an awesome job, and I love it. But but there is that feeling sometimes of like, um, cool, you know, like like yeah, that you're still like filing stories from the ballroom of the Titanic. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, which you know, and this is not to say I think there's a lot of value. I think in in what we do, there's a lot of value in making games. There's a lot of value in making playful things. There's value in making art and expressing yourself and doing goofy things. Like that's. That's if you can keep another human being from wanting to jump off a bridge for 10 minutes, you did a good thing. Like, I, I do believe that truly. But that doesn't mean that feeling doesn't come over you sometimes and, and you know, kind of make you feel crappy for wanting to play a video game and escape the world for a little while, for sure. So you just said something a couple minutes ago, and I'm just I'm just curious about it. We're going yeah. to get pretty real here. And you can edit scary. this out if if you don't dig this this line of inquiry. That's okay. It sort of seems to me like a big part of your sort of self-care regime depends on you being really young and full of boundless energy. Yes. And reality being what it is. <laughs> That's not gonna, you know what I mean? It's it, yeah. it's like not gonna be forever. Yes, right. Like the whole I'm gonna go work a shift in an ambulance, and I'm gonna go, you know, run Wrestle twelve miles. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm going to go volunteer somewhere, and then I'm gonna do my job. That's just that's just gonna get harder. Yep. <laughs> so I guess I'm curious, like, 
What's if like, I, like I, I guess like how does how does it evolve, right? Like how does how does how does self care and like and like regulating yourself? How does how does that evolve uh, when to an extent a lot of the things you do depended on you being in uh, depend on you always being in a really like healthy and energetic place. Yeah, um, it's that's something that's given me a massive amount of a of additional anxiety lately, and you know a lot of the things that I, I've I've been so throwing myself into so hard or also me feeling like, well, I'm really not going to be young for much longer. So I better do this now. Like that, that's how I felt a lot about sort of my EMT training and uh, getting experience on my ambulance. And it's also definitely how I feel about like my jujitsu training and, you know, boxing when I was doing that more, re- more regularly, it was like, well, <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be 33 in a month. Um, I'm not like old, obviously, but you know, the youth is fading for sure. And like, athletically speaking, I'm already starting to really feel those effects. It's it's not uncommon to start feeling those effects in your early 30s, for sure. Like, I'm not nearly as fast a runner as I was when I was 18. That's just a thing. That's a fact. And I hate it with all my heart. And but I have to accept reality, of course. Um, so a lot of this right now is like me kind of feeling like this is my last my last furious burst of energy. These are the last couple of years oh man, where that I can really. That do doesn't this. sound good or positive or. Nope, it's that not. Sounds, it sucks. That sounds intensely morbid. <laughs> yeah, that's like I, you know. I guess on some level, I I hope uh, in a couple of years to start thinking about uh, maybe potentially having a family and maybe potentially having a kid and kind of having like that be the place where I can put all sorts of energy yeah. uh, that I'll need. And maybe that'll be a good transition to be like, well, I used to do, you know, run 12 miles and then wrestle and then be on an ambulance and then do my full-time job and then teach and be like, and now that's the equivalent of having a child, which I know it's not an equivalent. There's no way of making an equivalent there, but you know, in my, in my dumb brain, that's how I'm trying, <laughs> trying to make sense of it, I guess. Uh, yeah, no, it's a very fair point. It's actually something I talked about last night with my girlfriend about, like, you know, your self-worth. She said something really, really poignant to me, uh, and she's wonderful and the best partner in the universe, and I can't give her enough credit for dealing with me. Uh, but she said something like, maybe maybe you really should think about other ways to sort of measure your self-worth that aren't just overexerting yourself in 10 different ways at the same time, basically. Uh, which I think is very valid and very fair. And it's it's going to be about that time to start thinking about ways of doing that that aren't killing myself. Um, for now. Yeah. <laughs> for now, I, I am like considering that and thinking about it and, and trying to get this last furious burst of energy out in a good way. So I have these memories and I have this base of experience in different worlds to sort of build on if I ever need to build on it, mm. if I ever need to pivot career-wise. Or if I ever need to, you know, whatever whatever I have to do, whatever the future holds, uh, I'll at least be able to say that I did these things and had that experience. Also, The Witcher 3. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Witcher 3 is my life of games because it has all these things that you can do. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, I've definitely gotten cautioned uh, by my partner as well about... Uh, she was like, you have this obsession with decline, is the, <laughs> the way she put it. Like, she, she fixates on it. Like, she she noticed, like, for as long as we've known each other, 
I always talk about like if I'm ever X age. Not sure. like when. I'm always like if. But she was like, it's kind of telling that you somehow always feel that like it's slipping away from you. And God, yeah. maybe you should work on that. <laughs> um but in the meantime, uh, the, 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 the gaming time is, is slipping away and, and makes it hard to uh, commit. I'll, I'll tell you, to, to finish this on a slightly like, happier, more cheerful note, um, <laughs> so something that actually I have gotten into a lot this past week, uh, we did a podcast on uh, Battlefield 1 on Three Was Ahead this week, and it was a lot of fun. Nice. had Evan Latian from PC Gamer and, and Fraser Brown, but Evan and Fraser really sort of reignited my passion for that game. I've been playing a lot of uh, the operations, which are these huge sprawling battlefields uh, where it's control point sort of. It's it's sort of like Rush, uh, the Rush mode, where it's like you take one control point after another, but like writ large. Like the maps are just enormous. Like every single set, like uh, sector of a battlefield is a map to itself, basically. These yeah. are just, just massive affairs. And... Uh, it's just it's just dramatic as hell you know you're like you're on one side of the map and like you can look across like a valley and you see a gun battle happening like in the far distance and you know that's still players like doing battle um it's it's just ridiculous like you feel like you are in the middle of a freaking war on these maps but the cool thing is these are really long games because actually the operations are chained together so like one battle feeds into the next. So in addition to fighting all over all these, like, you know, five sectors per map, there's a chain of maps that go together and form the complete operation. And so playing through this can take, like, well over an hour. Like, it can just, it can just be, take ages of, like, pitched battles and stuff. And I have been found that so utterly relaxing in an infuriating way because a lot of it, like, you know, with, with a game mode like this, inherently what happens a lot of times is like a deadlock form somewhere. Uh, sure. There is some position that, like, is just too staunchly defended and the team can't get its act together to storm it, but you keep trying different things. Um, people are changing classes to try to figure out the right composition to, to, to sort of storm the objective. Meanwhile, the other objective is under threat. And... I have just found that because it kind of tricks me because I'm like, ah, oh, it's just, I'm just doing, I'm just playing a quick match. I just went to the menu and I said, I'd like to play an operation. Just one button. Yeah. And that button is connected to like, all right, you're in this for like two hours now. Go. <laughs> like you got, you got to win. Sorry. You've got to <laughs> drive the final nail into the coffin of the Habsburg empire. I hope you're up for that tonight. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I think I am. <laughs> like I'm a pretty oh good machine gunner. Like I'm going to go do it. But it's been really great because, like, it's so it's like long form multiplayer uh, mm. in some ways, and it's just it's just utterly engrossing, and completely like short circuits that anal analysis paralysis because if for some reason the act of choosing a multiplayer match doesn't seem like a big commitment. You know what I mean? It's like you're just you'll play one game, yeah, and that one game is huge, but it just feels like one game. And so that's kind of what has been uh, dominating my gaming time a lot here at the here at the start of the year is just playing the hell out of this really engrossing shooter. Um, 
and so that's kind of been the thing that that's been sort of the thing that sort of penetrate this uh, haze of like obligation gaming and feeling like fear <laughs> of missing out uh, because it is it is sort of you know it, it's it's a it's a big meaty experience that sort of disguises itself as like throwaway. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really good. I I think I need something like that, uh, something that will actually just sort of gently take me by the chin. And, and point my eyes towards something and say, just just do this. Just sh- shut up with all the other stuff and just do this, focus on this, and be there. And I think I think I'll find that. I think I have plenty of <laughs> I have plenty of material to choose from. Uh, and you know, honestly, if it means going back to Witcher Three, which I know can do that for me, and just kind of jump into Blood and Wine, which I've had since you know three weeks before it came out. Um, I think that might actually be like the healthiest thing I can do right now is is just be like, you know what, Danielle, self, whatever. Yeah. Just blood, blood and wine. That's what you need right now. You need some blood. You need some wine. Just do that. <laughs> I keep having this like wild desire to restart The Witcher Three, oh, rather God, than play the new content. Like, there's this part of me. It's like it's been a while, man. Do you remember what was going on? Oh God. Maybe you should just start from the very beginning and do this upright. Oh. Yes, I totally understand. I'm just so close to the actual end. That's that's the most ridiculous thing. We talk about this game all the time. I've put more than 110 hours into this game. I never fully finished the main story because I just was having so much fun doing all everything else and going to every island in Skellige. You know, there's like dozens and dozens Danielle, of those. Danielle. I know. I only just got to Skellige, and I my character's just standing on a wharf in Skellige and hasn't done anything in like oh in like God. nine months. I oh have no. literally done no Skellige quests because I was like, no man, there's still so much to do in uh, Valen. I know. Well, I mean, there is. It's giant. Oh, anyway, yes. I. You know what? Fuck it. Be the stereotype that we are. You know, know the podcast that we are. Take a drink. Play <laughs> The Witcher out, 3. It turns out the real, <laughs> the real game we wanted was inside us all along. <laughs> it truly was. Oh, my God. Oh. We're going to, at some point, like, like we're, we're going to be dead at the gates of St. Peter. And it's going to be like, you know, it's going to open. And, like, Geralt's going to be there and, like, welcome. You finally found me. <laughs> Right, I think that that the good place was Skellige all along. Yes. Oh <laughs> God. Oh, on that beautiful note, truly beautiful note. Oh, we're going to sail to the island of our mailbag after a brief word from our sponsors. Danielle, you would not believe how much I just paid for a new head for the fancy electric toothbrush I bought last Christmas. Like. They had to check my credit score before they sold me a two-pack. Ugh, that sounds like such a rip-off, Rob. Yeah, it is, but what can you do? Sure, the toothbrush is probably going to get covered in that weird gunk that toothbrushes get. Like, within a couple weeks, it's just going to be gross. And probably the brush head will wear out about a year before I get around to actually replacing it, but... Really, what are the options? As Sam Seaborn said on the West Wing, if you take care of your teeth, CJ, your teeth will take care of you. Well, Rob, that might just be the only insight from the West Wing that has aged well, but there's a better way to care for your teeth without breaking the bank. You should try Quip. Jokes won't help here, Danielle. 
Oral hygiene is deadly serious for me. No, Rob. Quip provides thoughtfully designed tools to help you care for your teeth based on sound advice from dentists rather than needlessly gimmicky innovation that does more harm than good. You can buy one of their simple, straightforward electric toothbrushes, and if you subscribe to a refill plan at tryquip.com weekend, they'll send you a replacement head every three months for $5. Okay, that, that actually is a lot cheaper than what I'm used to paying for a toothbrush head replacement. Well, better yet, Quip is designed for a frequent traveler like you with a neat, compact travel case and a wall-mounted charger. Wait, you mean I don't just have to throw everything, including the power brick, inside a grungy Ziploc bag anymore? No, and that's really gross, Rob. Look, I'm staging an intervention. You need to go to tryquip.com weekend to get your starter set and $10 off your first refill. It's awesome, it's beautiful, and we have these beautiful, awesome letters here in our mailbag. Uh, we have our first letter. Uh, we don't have a name here, so that's okay. It's coming in from, I'm just going to say this is coming in from a human being. because I'm going to assume that. Um, or an advanced AI. I don't know. Uh, and then they are saying, hey, R&D. I recently decided to take the plunge into the Homeworld series for the very first time and decided to play the prequel game Deserts of Karak before trying the remastered Homeworld games, despite Homeworld proper being the original uh, and setting the tone for Deserts of Karak. For whatever reason, I have a strong preference for experiencing things according to their in-universe chronological order. After seeing Rogue One, my girlfriend also wants to watch all the pre-Disney Star Wars films for the first time, and she asked me what order we should watch them in. That's as much of a conversation I can safely relate in a public forum without first seeking refuge in a nuclear bunker under the surface of Mars. That said, how do you two feel about prequels in general, about the differing motivations behind the creation of prequels, sequels, and spinoffs, and how prequels can or should impact the way a newcomer chooses to approach the franchise as a whole? Happy New Year! Okay. Uh, yeah. So that letter is actually from uh, Garrick uh, Hushay. Oh, cool. I, so that, that's, I just forgot to uh, append that to, no, to the No, it's all good. Hi, Garrick. Um, all right, let's start with the Star Wars conversation real quick. Yeah. Because I think the whole order thing is bullshit. I kind of like, do too. I think the the whole like the machete order and all that like it's an interesting thought experiment. But like I can't imagine anything I'd like to do less than watch like the Star Wars films like via the machete order. <laughs> like you're dealing with two series of films made like twenty years apart. Yeah. That in terms of vision like have almost nothing to do with each other. Yep. And so chronologically it almost doesn't matter and the first series was made with the expectation that there would never be a prequel trilogy and i think all the prequel trilogy can do is i mean for, I, first of all i'm just a strong advocate for like not watching the prequels i agree uh, they're, they're they're bad films uh but if you want to be completionist about it uh like you know Maybe if I were to go through Star Wars again today, having seen the original trilogy like, you know, 20 times, I might I might watch them all chronologically. But if I'm introducing someone to, to these films, um, God, I'm not starting with that garbage prequel trilogy. Oh, God, like, no. Because then it's going to taint the actual classic films that, yeah. the, that like, someone actually should, should see and, and enjoy. Uh, so no, no. This this whole chronological question uh, with 
in general, I find uh, order of creation to be far more interesting uh, yeah. than uh, order of storytelling. Yes. Because the interesting story about Star Wars is also partially, uh, like, the story of George Lucas and his own arc, you know, and, and, and all the creative people who made those movies and their arc and sort of those movies place in time. Like, that's as interesting to me as the movies are themselves. And I say this as somebody who grew up a Star Wars obsessive and read every book as, you know, as a young teen, as a 12, 13 year old, I read every ridiculous Star Wars book. I had like dozens and dozens of them. I love this universe. I love the the, the weirdness of it. I love the dirtiness of it. I love the the sort of the you know, the whole feelings of rebellion and all those those other kind of good things. So I say this is somebody who loves that fiction, but th- the way those things were made is just as cool and interesting. So it's it's fun, I think. I've actually done this before. I, I knew a sort of disproportionate, I think, amount of people who didn't ever watch the Star Wars movies uh, when I was a little bit younger, like when I was in college and, and grad school and, and maybe a little older than that. I had a girlfriend who had never ever encountered Star Wars before and uh I this was unheard of to me because I I didn't think of Star Wars when I was that young I didn't think of Star Wars as like a nerd thing I just thought of it as movies everybody saw I thought of them the same way I thought of Disney movies you know the sort of thing where it's like yeah didn't didn't everybody grow up watching this stuff like this is like you just know it exists and you saw it at one point kind of thing uh so I you know and this was probably 2008, maybe. Yeah, probably around 2008. So the the garbage prequels had all come out and been shot on by that point, of course. And I, of course, started with the original, whatever, episode four, A New Hope, Star Wars from 1977, and showed that to her. She was not into it. She thought it was pretty stupid, um, which made me a little sad because I was like, oh, you know, I can, you know, I don't think this is the greatest movie ever made. But like for somebody who who is attending film school with me, I, I, I thought maybe she'd appreciate like the craft that went into this. But fine, you know, which should have told me things about her anyway. But it's fine. Uh, you don't have to like Star Wars to be a good human being. I'm just saying. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, I totally agree. I think I think the order in which things are made can be a lot more interesting than the order in which the the sort of quote unquote uh, story is told, especially when something like the fidelity of the story itself is is so weak and terrible as it is in the sort of the prequel trilogy you know the the 1999 to 2005 movies made with star wars uh, on on the on the title like that the the, <laughs> the most interesting things about those movies are the way they were made and the documentaries made about them which are maybe the greatest pieces of unintentional comedy that you can just find for free on youtube um I legitimately, when I'm having a bad day, I will watch that that documentary that came on the DVD of what or oh, whatever man. of the Phantom Menace and just watch George Lucas just be an eight year old among a group of people like Hollywood power suits looking at each other like I guess, I guess he's the genius I I don't know and he's just like oh this blah 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 and just it's the funniest fucking thing you can watch it's amazing and I love it. Um, so yes, sorry, yeah. I'm going on and on here, but I also think there's absolutely value to prequels and spinoffs. I really liked Rogue One. I don't, I don't think it's perfect. I think there were some issues with it. Um, I always take issue with like a side story that doesn't really add anything, or or just sort of only exists to be sort of a cash in, or or, or or that sort of thing, or feels like it only exists to be a cash in. I thought it, I thought Rogue One added some, you know, sort of value to the story. I thought it, it showed 
aspects of Star Wars that were more interesting to me. The sort of idea that, hey, it's really difficult to have a rebellion. It's really difficult to build a coalition. It's difficult to do all these things. That sort of thesis of the movie I thought was really cool and actually added some context. Uh, and that was rad. So, yeah, I think they can have plenty of value. It just it just kind of needs to be done right. And they definitely made some missteps as well. I also kind of think the the question of motivation or, or what the goal is matters here as well because i think a good a good prequel i think, I think prequel especially uh, almost needs to be an examination of the themes of the core work yeah. um like yes. that's that's kind of a like i i just kind of feel like prequels in a lot of cases need to be a little more meta and uh, and a little more aware yeah. of the con- the continuum they're part of because like Otherwise, a lot of times what you're just doing is telling the origin story of the thing you actually care about. Yeah. Uh, to, to quote Patton as well, like, stop telling me where the stuff I love came from. <laughs> uh, I don't need to know it. And, that's, and, I, and I think that's a pretty good summation. Like, I don't need to know the backstory behind the cool story that, that I heard. Um, I already heard the great story. And if it like, so if you're going to go before, if you're going to like set a prequel there, it does need to engage with those themes uh, yeah. in a very, in a very self-aware way. It can't just be a plot that sets up the resolution that was offered in the original, in the original saga. So I think that's, uh, I think that's something that, that has to be part of it. Spinoffs are interesting too, though. Um, like, Those are those are much harder. Like when you're taking. Okay, interesting example. As I understand it, like the Free Space games were originally like the first game was called Descent Free Space. Huh. And the idea, as I understand it, was that like Descent Free Space was the space shooter version of like it was in that it, like it was sort of like loosely connected to that ridiculous corridor shooter. Uh, where you're like killing robots in different minds, uh, and that's kind of like where that project came from. Uh, and, and I think like if you're when you're doing spinoffs, I think the faster the faster you can leave behind uh, the original conceit, the 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 origin, uh, the, the better off the better off you are. Uh, the like it can't be about like. Hey, remember how much you liked Joey from Friends? Like, it, it can't be that. Uh, yeah. You need to you need to run like hell uh, toward a destination and not just be uh, continuing to follow one character for 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 no damn good reason. Where this really interesting example, uh, I mean, I love two like two of my favorite sitcoms are Cheers and Frasier. Nice, yeah. And what's interesting to me is that Frasier really quickly. Like almost in the first episode, dispenses with the Cheers connection. He, ba- you know, he basically says like, "I used to hang out in a bar in Boston, but now I'm here with my family and I moved on." Yep. <laughs> and then it just becomes a show about basically a, uh, you know, a psychiatrist uh, reconnecting with his family and sort of working through his and their issues, uh, you know, in this in this new sort of half life uh, that he's got. Where it gets interesting is a couple times later. Uh, characters from Cheers pop up, and uh, there's there's one there's one episode that I found really interesting. Uh, Ted Danson 
shows up. <laughs> uh, Sam Malone appears on an episode of Frasier. And there's a weird melancholy to that episode because it's two people who no longer have as much common in common as they used to. And so, like, there's this very like convincing scene, I think, of them, like, driving in a car and they're just catching up on the old gang. But once they run out of that, there's just so little that binds these characters. Yeah. And it was kind of, it's it's kind of a case of a show kind of embracing the fact that, like, the spinoff has sort of outgrown its origins. And it's okay to acknowledge that these characters that mean a lot to us in, in this one setting, this one story, as the characters' lives move on after the, you know, after the plot is over, it's okay to acknowledge that people grow apart. Yeah. And they grow in different directions. And I thought that was a really interesting, like, self-aware take on where Frasier sat in relation to Cheers, but also where those characters would sit in relation to each other. And I think that's kind of a guide for how a spinoff does need to outgrow uh, its origins that way. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. All right, so our next letter comes from Jake from Los Angeles. Hi, DNR. I've recently got back into running. After a month of practice, I've been reliably running six-minute miles, my fastest time to date. But on the following second mile, I'm on average a minute slower. Have any tips for those of us trying to work on our running endurance? I have lots of advice, Jake, from Los Angeles. So, uh, first of all, congrats. Six-minute miles uh, are pretty goddamn good. I mean, depending on the, the distance you're running. Like, if you're running more than four or five miles, uh, sticking with the six-minute miles, that's that's good. That's really good. Um, well, but, yeah, you want to run negative splits. Uh, that's the That's the whole general thing. Uh, with with most <laughs> with most of us, and negative splits means you faster go on out, the second mile. What's oh no no no? Uh, every mile is faster, okay. basically, or every split is faster, depending on how you're you're doing. Well, that, that's what I mean. So you're actually gaining speed as you as you run. Yes, but negative splits is for some reason the reason of no. I mean, I, like we, we both play it. tons of racing games. Yes. Like the the negative split is you beat your you beat your last time. But I guess I'm just kind of fascinated by this notion that you're expected to be getting faster as you run and I would presume get tired. Oh yes. Well, that's the idea. That's how you build endurance. Um, you want to speed up as you get tired, honestly. Uh, so the way to do that, uh, reliably is go slow, be painfully slow in your first mile, then get a little faster, then get a little faster, then get a little faster. This sort of stuff does get easier with practice. You get really good, uh, if you if you do long distance running for a long time at really knowing your pace, really knowing when you're dogging it, really knowing when you're doing faster than usual, uh, if you have like a you must have a decent watch or else you wouldn't know that you're doing six minute miles for sure, or unless you're doing this on a treadmill, uh, whatever method you're using uh, is is totally cool. It's all kind of all good, but yeah, negative splits, my friend. That's how you gain endurance, um, and you will gain that endurance for sure if you if you keep doing it. It takes a while. It does take, like, I, I would say at least six good months uh, to get a, a real feel for your pace and how fast you can run. And, and of course, it, depending on, on what kind of shape you were in before you started running, uh, it could take longer or a lot less. You might have been in amazing shape uh, doing other activities before you were running like this. But, yeah, negative splits is the name of the game, my friend. Also, right. something you want to do. Uh, just throwing this out there is you want to definitely vary your training up a lot. You want to do mile repeats sometimes. You want to do fartlek runs sometimes. You want to do uh, interval training sometimes. And you definitely want some hills in there 
for sure, depending on what you're training for. But variety always helps. It's going to work your muscles in different ways, and it's going to keep you from getting uh, basically uh, plateauing uh, as a runner. So want to do all that good stuff. Interesting. So like, so, so for someone like where, where Jake is at, where if like from a standing start, they gun out their first mile in six, in six minutes, like would the regime be like, try to pace yourself to like hit an eight minute mile and then maybe oh, yeah. cut it down for the even second slower, mile? Depending on how wow. far he's going, really? if he's going like five or six miles. Yeah. Even slower and go for, maybe you want to say 30 second uh differences and then you want your last mile you want the mile where you're going to be the most tired you want that to be your fastest mile by far that's what you want that's where you want your six minute mile and it's going to be hard as hell and it should be uh but that's how you build endurance that's how you really build yourself up to uh to be able to kind of take anything on race day so yeah slow painfully slow jogging like like if you see like a 97 year old man passing you on the street be like good that's great for your first mile then you start putting on the heat so yeah, that's how you do it, Jake. At least that's how I was always trained to do it. I mean, it's entirely possible that since my cross country days in college, things have changed. Uh, but I kind of doubt it because it's a it's a pretty tried and true principle for endurance. All right, we've got a letter here from Chris, and Chris writes, <clears throat> "I finally had a chance to watch Yamamushi Pedal, the cycling sports anime manga that Danielle mentioned quite a few episodes ago." I'm on the second season now. It is sports anime down to a T, excuse me, conveying almost every trope imaginable, some of which are, one, Onada, the main character, is an underdog, yet displays some sort of proficiency of an aspect of the sport. Two, oftentimes the main character knows nothing about the sport, yet has great potential. Three, there's always secret techniques that come into fruition. They can be as realistic or fantastic as they want to be. A character can glow, a slashing wind can form around them, denoting a strong aura, or they can even sprout wings. Four, there's always a rival in some sort of some sort that helps the main character develop into someone better. Five, there's always a lot of exposition, usually from a seasoned character that explains some aspect of the sport or talks about a secret technique. It's usually done in a very dramatic fashion and often explains how a character overcomes an obstacle. As someone who does triathlon, I came into the show with some cycling knowledge. YP starts out surprisingly realistic in the first episode. For example, uh, Imazumi, I think is how you pronounce that? Imazumi, one of the characters, talks about his climbing and how he's running a compact crank. However, uh, they, he quickly gets more and more unrealistic, with races often being decided by guts rather than any realistic racing strategy. And despite having ridiculous leads in the beginning of a race, somehow every stage ends up to be a photo finish. Yet sports anime is great mainly because it introduces a sport in a positive way and teaches beginners the basics of the sport. Many times the most accurate information is fudged a little bit for drama, but the essentials are there. That, coupled with fun, often tropey characters, makes sports anime fun to watch. Uh, YP has this in spades, especially in the characters department. Except for that guy who yells abs repeatedly and talks to his named Pex. That guy is the worst. <laughs> Which brings me to my question. How come we don't have something similar in Western culture? Where a complete newbie goes into sports, uh, a sports show or movie, or even a comic book, learning about the basics uh, and being inspired to try it out. I can't think of any sports movie or show where the basics aren't already assumed. There's no teaching about the sport. Media already figures that if a person's interested, they'll already know how to play. I love sports movies like The Natural, but if someone isn't into baseball, then the movie's a hard sell. 
You guys have any ideas? Chris. So I have a, I have a theory. Yeah, please. Uh, one, one is that a lot of what's described here, I think, works a hell of a lot better in a TV series rather than the movie. Mm. But I think, like, if you look at, say, American film and TV, uh, sports movies are very common. Sports TV shows, I think, are, are, are far less common. Yeah. And so I think movies tend to just focus on um, the, the dramatization of, of, of a sport and, and really go as light on the, on the uh, basics or the technique as possible. Like they, they, they try to evoke that some, some other ways, but you, you're not going to have like, you know, um, Michael Mann's like Ali yeah. never actually sits down and, and, and breaks down uh, pretty much any of the fights or any of the technique un- until the, the rumble in the jungle where, um, you know, finally, probably for the only time because it's such an iconic fight, uh, they really break down the the style of the two fighters and and why Ali was uh really concerned about uh fighting uh Foreman. Yeah. Um but I, like you know you look at the natural <laughs> that movie is all like uh gorgeous imagery and stirring music while Robert Redford belts Homer and Homer <laughs> Homer after Homer uh, out of every <laughs> single park in, yeah. in in uh major league baseball. Um, and I think actually the more you're into baseball, the, the harder it is to stand the natural. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like when you're talking about sort of getting into the basics of a sport, um, a show that's done that very effectively is pitch, uh, totally. yeah. because that's a series. It can have an episode about like one of their best episodes was about a beanball game, uh, which is all about the sort of weird rituals of violence around <laughs> throwing uh, balls at batters uh, to, to with the intent to hit, with the intent to, to, to hurt and scare the shit out of them. Uh, and, and how there's like sort of a almost ritualistic cycle of like uh, bean balls and then ensuing payback and violence. <laughs> yeah. And that you can do that in a show because you can have that episode. The series ended with a discussion of pitching uh of pitch counts for a season and how they track um, basically how much arm, how, how much work your arm has done over the course of a season. And after a certain point, they pull you because you don't have anything left physically for a year. You've thrown all the pitches that the human body, or at least your body is capable of throwing, yeah. but you can do that in a series because you always have the option to say, okay, so for this episode, the concept that's going to drive the action is X. And you can't do that in a movie as well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's some movies that, that tackle aspects of things uh, better than others. Obviously, some, something like Moneyball, you know, at least yeah. did attempt to explain, and in the most basic terms, sort of the economic model of, of you know, how to put together a successful baseball team. Um, you know, something like that. I suppose Creed went a little bit into uh, at least some of the the theory behind some of the training, not necessarily into fighting styles, but but it did kind of uh, present a fairly honest uh, picture of what the training does and why you do certain things with techniques and so on and so forth. It, it wasn't a really massive part of the movie, but yeah, I mean, you're totally right. There's just a difference between these these type of media. Um, I would I would love to, God. 
I, I mean, I just, the thing I love about Yawapita, I think I said that right. Amanda Cosmos will uh, correct me if I said it wrong. That the, <laughs> the shortening of the term of the name of the, of the show um, is that I, I don't even, to be honest with you, I don't even care about the characters that much. I just really like learning about this sport in this really fun and colorful way. Like for me, it's like a vehicle for that more than more than anything else. And I, I, I had similar feelings, although I like the characters much better in something like uh, Yuri on Ice, but it's the first thing that's ever made me interested at all in the sport of figure skating. Just just learning a little bit of, of how the competitions work and how different moves work. And I know it's not entirely realistic, but just just getting that sense of of, of how some some of the mechanics operate is is like, whoa, now I see why people were so into this. You know, that I, is spoken I, what, by someone like someone who has not seen enough Johnny Ware calling clearly, yeah, clearly. I mean, honestly, my entire exposure to figure skating before I watched this show was like my sister being really excited, and she was she was always a dance kid. I was the little jock, and my sister was the perfect ballerina, and you know, she was always interested in it from like a dance kind of point of view and like she always liked the pageantry of it and all that kind of stuff and i'd be like whatever this is stupid show the runners again um which you know tells you everything you need to know about me as a child and today uh but now i'm like wow these guys are amazing athletes they're basically dancers and athletes and this is so cool and i clearly need to actually watch some some real life interesting routines <laughs> All right, so our last email comes from John Rennish. Hello, R&D. Back in early 2016, with the help of Tom Check and the crew at Idle Weekend, you did a great job of providing insight into the inner workings of a review. With that advice in hand, uh, this happy neophyte went merrily off on his way. Until crashing into a brick wall at the end of the year, when Game of the Year became the talk of the town. <laughs> How can one compare the oppressive desire for death's sweet release when playing Darkest Dungeons against the joyful celebration of life found in Tokyo Mirage Sessions uh, F.E. What debate can be had between the nearly narcotic thrill of cocking the Doom Shotgun against the zen-like fugue state of Abzu? <laughs> of course, the answer is likely uh, that lists are purely subjective and come from the gut. But for the sake of discussion, what is the process that you use when creating a Game of the Year list? What changes when building a shared list with others? <sighs> I mean, John, you're completely right in your assumption that it's just from the gut, honestly. Uh, at least in terms of my opinions of games and, and sort of where you rank them and where you put them. When I personally make a list, I like to I like to make something that that, you know, just totally subjective. I, I know subjectively what games will be on there, at least out of the sort of pool of games that I played. And it's it's whatever sticks with me the longest. Like it's it's kind of that easy. Like it's it's whatever sticks with me the longest in a positive way. Now the witness stuck with me a long time, but I hated it. So you know that went on. I wrote a, another piece about the witness in our sort of uh, end of year coverage. Um, but yeah, whatever I'm remembering when I think, what did I play this year? And it's like, oh, I can't, I can't stop thinking about this world. I can't stop thinking about this character. I can't stop thinking about this amazing experience. This made me feel awesome. This made me feel terrible, but in a way I liked, you know, that sort of thing. The most memorable games, I, I would put it uh, in a positive way. And then in terms of ordering it, it's, it's partially in terms of impacting. It's also partially in terms of like, hey, you know what? I want to give this, I totally put something higher on the list or lower on the list based on sort of where I 
just to feel like, no, you know what? This deserves some more recognition. I put Dishonored 2 in my number two slot because I, I not only did I think it was amazing and like incredibly well designed, but I also was like, you know, this, this game is a fucking achievement. I'm going to put this high on my list. Like this feels like an achievement. This feels like incredibly intelligent people uh, really know what they're doing uh, in terms of level design and, you know, uh, the design of, of the verbs. I, I, I'm not really calling this correctly i guess you know mechanical design just sort of gameplay design uh, this is like an achievement i'm putting this high on the list i put even the ocean number one on the list because i thought it made sort of the most impact out of the games that i played i thought that actually like said something about the world and it says something about me to put it on the top of my list so it's all a lot of gut checks and it's all a lot of uh, of sort of discussion, internal discussion of like impact. And what do you want to say with your own list? What do you want to actually give credit for? What do you want to, what do you want to show to the world? Um, when you're building a list with somebody, with other people, you just get mad. That's mostly what my experience was uh, because like 2014 is my most famous example of just being very angry uh, with <laughs> my colleagues for not having played, I thought, half of the really great games in 2014. Nobody fucking played Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze. People didn't really like Alien Isolation or didn't give it a fair shake, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I mostly just get mad and advocate for the things that I care about. That's what that's like. <laughs> so, yeah, I think for, for me, largely, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. Like, it's the stuff you remember at the end of the year uh, that really stands out. And sometimes that can surprise you. Uh, sometimes it's, and th and then you almost have to go back and sort of replay and reconsider. Um, but like in general, the thing that uh, you know that that gut check, the thing that pulls me very strongly toward a game is just the degree to which it made an impression. Yeah, like there's encounters or sequences that I like vividly can recall and like have kind of been thinking about a lot uh, since I since I played them. Like that that counts for an awful lot with me. Um. I haven't really done the whole collaborative game of the year stuff. Uh, I mean, we we did a long discussion of that on on uh, Three Moves Ahead, but that wasn't yeah. really like there wasn't the ranking element. It was just us covering everything we sort of felt needed to be covered. I think for the ranking thing, like I find like at some point someone's going to write a paper on bargaining strategies around <laughs> the giant bomb. Uh, game of the year podcast totally yeah and the thing that really got me sort of obsessed with this was in 2016 the start 2016 um austin walker got uh oh shit what was the it's the xcom stealth game uh I invisible Ink. oh yes yes he got invisible ink onto that list and that was his one objective for that year yeah. and what i found fascinating was the degree to which like that strategy paid off because everybody else tries to get as much of their stuff onto the list as possible. And there's a lot of like vote swapping and like negotiation. Like it's a really weird thing. These are like it's a negotiated list. Uh it's not personal. It's what in general is the feeling of the giant bomb crew uh that year. But what what I found so fascinating was like Austin basically games that system. Like, he basically gamified the giant bomb end-of-year discussions. <laughs> and was like, you guys can discuss whatever you want. I'm going to be very chill about this. <laughs> but the one thing I'm not going to be chill about is Invisible Ink. So just so you know that, like, that's going to be on this list. Um, or it's, or it's going to be left off over my dead body. 
<laughs> and that ended the discussion. Like, literally, everyone just sort of backed off of Invisible Ink, and the discussion began from this perspective of, okay, so no matter what, Invisible Ink is going to be somewhere on this list. Yeah. And what I found fascinating was contrasting that with some of the other strategies you see um, that maybe don't pay off as well. Um, yeah. There, there are some. If you listen to the twenty, I haven't listened to the twenty seventeen ones, but I have definitely like formed my view. Like you know how Supreme Court justices like are sort of analyzed for the way they negotiate yes. and like d- like discuss issues and and what they can bring on to um, you know agreement uh, majority opinions versus concurrences versus dissents and oh, yes. the sort of strategies that are visible there. Yeah. Yeah. The same thing happens with Giant Bomb, but you hear everything to an extent, which is why I find it so fascinating. And I've definitely started to sort of, like, I have my own views on, like, how certain people approach that collaborative task and the strategies they employ. And I find that really fascinating. Uh, But I think that is night and day different from creating your own game of the year list. Totally. Totally. And it, yeah, you're right. It is utterly fascinating. Oh my god! One day we'll have to—I don't know—maybe maybe figure out some some way of making a collective idle weekend uh, games of all time list. Yeah. But I mean, who are we kidding? It's gonna yeah, be like, it's yeah. gonna be Witcher Three is on that list, and it's fine. So, <laughs> um, with that, I think it's time for us to talk about our weekend projects. Rob, are you are you? into anything right now that is like just really you know not giving you choice paralysis you're like going towards it you're enjoying it you're having fun with it well you know almost in contrast to um almost in contrast to our discussions earlier in this episode i've recently become really aware that i am enjoying some sort of um like haydn renaissance uh basically uh franz joseph haydn uh the composer I've just become dimly aware over the over the past year that like every time I'm in the car listening to a classical station or every time like I've got a classical playlist going and I'm like, damn, I, I just really like this. It's it's like kind of exactly what I want from 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 a lot of classical music. It's uh you know, sort of it's fundamentally um upbeat and I hate to like I think his music does tend to be a little more cheerful and uh, less mm. emotionally layered uh, compared to other composers. But there, there's something else to it as well. I, I feel like it's not as intellectually demanding as, for instance, like um, uh, Bach. And it's easier to just sort of be carried away by the music, but not necessarily um, forced to contemplate its structure the way that, that, that Bach sometimes uh, makes you. Uh, box sometimes feels very witnessy in terms sure. of like, all right, no, really think about this, man. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, for the, for the past couple of weeks, I've really been uh, getting into, uh, I've been really paying a lot more attention to uh, Haydn's uh, compositions. And uh, for the past week, I've been listening a lot to uh, uh, Cello Concertos number one and two. And so that's a, a weird, really round, like I'm not a super musical person. Like hearing me talk about this, I am sure... Uh, it is obvious that I'm not a super musical person, and yet here I am, uh, having become really aware of how much I enjoy this one composer uh, more than many, many others right now. And so I guess that's my kind of endorsement, is that 
I think the reason this has caught me by surprise is I think Haydn just tends to get overlooked a little bit uh, because he's in this sort of like historical valley, I, I think. Like yeah. Haydn is overshadowed by Mozart, who I think in some ways is doing similar type stuff, but maybe in a slightly more digestible or, or catchy form. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think what's been surprising for me is that for some reason I'm off Mozart these days and really all in on Haydn. That's that's really awesome. I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm also not a musical person, but I will share. I will share with you this. This is um, a really special dad joke. It's my favorite. My oh, dad's no, I favorite. Oh no, I got it. I got it. Oh yes, go. You already know what it is. I'm sure because this is. Uh, you know, this is not like my dad didn't make this. He just really appreciates this. He likes to pull this out sometimes. Uh, and this came from when I was in high school. So maybe maybe it's uh, gotten a little. Maybe this this premium dad joke is, is showing its age a bit at this point. But my father likes to put a uh, like a <laughs> a frying pan behind his back, and he's like hiding, and then he pulls it out, and he goes show pan, and then he points to the handle, and he goes handle, and it's uh it's really special. Oh wow, really. okay, that one's yep. yeah, that's that's whoa, that's super, that's very dad. That is super dad. Dorky as it fucking gets. I mean, of course, it's always prefaced with, oh, do you want to hear about my favorite classical musicians? I probably should have set it up for real, but, you know, my dad may have fucked it up, too. Waka, waka, waka. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Where I thought you were going was the, uh, hey, Danielle, why couldn't anyone ever find Mozart's music teacher? He was hiding. Yep, there we go. (laughs) Oh fucking love it um for my part uh, other than dad jokes i have been well i've been reading something but i'll share that next week because i'll still be reading it next week i have been obsessively watching a show called halt and catch fire okay. I think it's an amc series uh like premium series uh about the early 80s and sort of tech and computer companies and the the backstabbing and the the moves people made and and so on and so forth uh, which is, you know, the very, very high-level premise. Uh, but it's really about four people. It's about this guy named Lee Pace. Uh, sorry, not Lee Pace. Lee Pace yeah, plays him. He's Joe McMillan is, is the character, who's this slick 80s, you know, ex-IBM kind of computer guy. And in the first season, he, you know, kind of kickstarts this this project to make a brand new computer to compete on the national level, basically, at a smaller electronics company in, uh, in Texas. And it's set in, like, 1983 at first. Uh, it's also about this guy, Gordon Clark, who's this kind of down-on-his-luck computer engineer. His wife, Donna Clark, who is way smarter than Gordon is. She's also an engineer, but she kind of eats a lot of shit, especially at first, because she kind of has to take care of the kids, and she has a junior programmer position somewhere, and it's, uh, you know, very... It, the show goes hard on the, sort of the sexism of the tech industry and, you know, just business in America in general, especially in the early 80s. And then there is Cameron Howe, it's kind of the real star of the show, uh, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. Uh, played by Mackenzie Davis, who is this brilliant, brilliant, very punkish young woman who is this incredibly just genius, talented programmer who's sort of brought onto the team. Uh, I think the first season flounders a little bit. It's it's very much focused more on the sort of the two men and their partnership to make this computer and, and sort of how they, they really do use the women in their lives to kind of 
really get them out of trouble. Uh, the women are, are definitely sort of the smarter, uh, more agile engineers and programmers. Uh, and But the second season on, and I'm in the third season now, focuses so much more on Cameron and Donna who go into business together and sort of create this really sort of prototypical uh, video game company called Mutiny. They They make like video games and they make all sorts of uh cool stuff in this like very early atari era you know uh early 80s to mid 80s kind of stuff and the show does get a little cheesy at times for sure in terms of like every it feels like every kind of game technology uh they invented it you know there's an episode about like basically inventing sort of community features and basically inventing facebook and basically inventing broadband and basically inventing the third uh, the first person shooter and kind of all this stuff that's like okay no one company you know figured out all of those things but it uses it as sort of a dramatic springboard uh to kind of talk about things like gender and tech and about you know just tech's place in american culture the characters are awesome and fascinating and uh i think the acting is is way above uh sort of the the huge for this this kind of show that's kind of like very dramatic uh you know businessy uh type of series uh and i'm just really really enjoying it i i love the the women characters on this show particularly the, i think the men are very interesting i think joe mcmillan is sort of like this fascinating asshole he's He's bisexual, which is something that that comes up early, actually, even in the first season. Weaponized uh, bisexuality, one could say. Yeah, definitely weaponized bisexuality. But it, it actually not not necessarily in that in that first episode where it comes up. Uh, it, it, that comes up in a very negative way. But like, I, I think he he's actually bisexual. He it comes up later on. He's had romances uh, with men uh, and and with women, and he's. He's sort of this just fascinating creature who's a total asshole, total asshole, but a fascinating creature who actually sort of really wants to to make moves in this world and to, I think, do good with technology, even though he he has no idea how to actually relate to other human beings. Uh, yeah, it's just, just a, a weird and interesting and fascinating character study set in a, a really interesting time. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working I'm through, it. I'm working through season one. And okay. I love the craft of this show and the acting uh, in particular. Yes. And just how um, it is very much like, to an extent, you know the pitch was like Mad Men, but mm-hmm. the 80s computing scene. Totally. Uh, but it turns into, at least in season one, and this is the part where I find it hard to watch, uh, a l- I just find it hard to watch at times. It's also kind of the psychodrama. Oh, totally. Um, yeah. And a lot of that is coming from, like, and I, maybe it does make me uncomfortable, particularly in the first season, that a lot of the plots revolve around just, like, blatantly screwing with or um, or using uh, the, the female characters oh, in totally. a lot of ways. And the show's completely yes. aware of that. Like, yes. It's yes. absolutely aware that um, Donna is, her name is Donna, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. That that Donna is quietly a far more innovative and insightful uh, engineer. Yes, um, she is. She can solve problems that like no other characters really can. Uh, it is very clear that like uh, Cam is like a generational programming talent. Yes, but where it gets really uncomfortable, and I guess a lot of it is just centered on Joe, uh, really. 
Yeah. Joe is just... Almost like this corporate cat in the hat. Totally. Uh, who just, like, shows up, gets everyone yeah. hyped for this project, has no idea where it is leading, and just unleashes chaos uh, totally. in his wake. And it is just, like, there, there is shit that is, like, brutal to watch. And, like, Lee Pace, great actor. You never guessed that this was the same guy in Pushing Daisies, by the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of my favorite shows, God, uh, God Rest It's Soul. Uh, great show. Yeah. You know, there he's the sweet, um, sort of shy pie maker. Uh, it's a very romantic and, and, and cuddly show uh, yeah. in, in a lot of ways. Heartwarming. And here he's a shark. Like oh, my God. Piece of shit. Like, like, oh, my God. It's it's like American Psycho terrifying. Oh, yeah. Like, there yeah. there is this unhinged aspect uh, to that character. Uh, and, and every scene where he's off by himself, you just start to get nervous because you're like, where's this going? Cause where are a, the bodies? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times, those scenes go really weird places. Yeah. I just finished, uh, but but I think I, I think I've turned a corner with the show because I'm really starting to get it and uh, click with it. Um, there's actually been a couple episodes in, in the first season. I just finished the hurricane episode. Okay, okay, um, yeah, it, just... it really takes off uh, at the very end of the season, uh, for sure. Yeah, but that was, uh, it, yeah, it was a bit like. Certainly plot heavy, uh, like, not plot heavy, but <laughs> yeah. like um, like thematically, it sort of whacks you over the head uh, with, oh, with yeah. character development. But it, it was still just so well executed that you just don't care. Um, yeah. We've seen the plot of Dad forgot to buy the children the the hot toy that Christmas, and he's got one day that we've seen that plot a million times mm-hmm. trying to find the the toy. But it still catches you off guard just what a dark night of the soul it turns into for Gordon <laughs> going out there trying to clear up this fuck up uh, while uh, Joe, meanwhile, is showing like his first warmth and, and human connection uh, yeah. in, in the series. Uh, and then there's endearing, like, character I really like in the first season. And it, it ties into sort of my fascination with the bit players in The Expanse, right? Like, like I love it when a show has characters you were dying to know more about. Yeah. Um, and and they're, they're never really fleshed out beyond that. The old... Uh, he's not the company president, but, like, the old VP at John the, uh, Bosworth. Yeah. I love him. Yes. He, there's the scene. Him. There are these two moments in the first season. One is, and I guess this is maybe a foreshadowing of where the series is headed. Everyone is stuck in the office playing this video game. And he's like, what the hell are you all doing here? And Everyone, he's this in my Texas office. good old boy, too, which, which plays so oh, yeah. far into this. That he's like this, uh, you know, he's just like this sales guy who doesn't give a shit about computer basically and that's like the setup but sorry yeah. go ahead i'm no, just and then so he, excited he's about like, in my office right now and he's like <laughs> full team meeting and he yeah. turns his computer around he's got the game up he's like how the hell do i get out of this cave <laughs> uh that was the one thing the other thing is there is this moment where they set up this feeling that he is absolutely about to like sexually harass cam yeah yep uh and it feels like gross and uncomfortable uh but then what he actually wants to talk to her about in private, in private in his office is actually about where a woman, like, the things a woman like her is going to have to watch out for in a company mm-hmm. like that and in mm-hmm. a market like that. And I thought that was such a cool, the fact that, like, quietly one of the most progressive characters in some ways is 
the super good old boy. Yes. You know, you, you expect him to have two hunting dogs underneath his desk at all yep. times, basically. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that that is such a cool detail uh, in that yeah. show. And that, it, I won't spoil anything, but that does really play into some other stuff that happens. Uh, really would urge you to keep watching because I, I do think... Uh, the show is almost like Farscape in a certain way where I Uh-oh. do think it flounders a bit at first, but like once you get to the end of the first season, it is smooth sailing and it really, mm. it goes to some really, really cool places. And How good is that music too? Oh my God. Patricia and I seriously like pretend synth sing at each other all the time and our cats because we love the, <laughs> we love the soundtrack so much. It's really, it's, it's something. It's special. Um, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed this show. I'm, I'm so glad you're watching it too. We're going to have to keep having Halt and Catch Fire, uh, check-ins, I think, in our, in our endorsements. If you're, if you're having a, if you, if you get to a certain point, All right. uh, I really want to hear, I want to hear yeah. more. I want to hear right, more I'm about game. how you're feeling. Yeah. Excellent. Awesome. Uh, so I think with that, on that very positive note, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. Uh, this episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And we always appreciate that you are listening to us, and we always appreciate when you tell a friend or an enemy, a cellmate, a cousin, whoever, anybody, anybody that you think might enjoy Idle Weekend, uh, if you if you use that beautiful word of mouth that you have, the power that you have to use your word of mouth, that would be so wonderful. We really appreciate it. And if you could also take a moment and rate us on iTunes, that helps us so much. And both of those things mean the universe to us. So thank you so much. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends. Heavy <sighs> podcasting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Well, uh, what Danielle, an act. I can't choose a game because of my paralyzing fear of mortality. <laughs> Play the Witcher! <laughs> We're the worst. Oh god, it's awesome. <laughs>